a lot of it ends up coming down to understanding human nature and understanding who you're building for. Everyone creates something. Everyone cares about somebody else that they're making something for. And this is just a guide for how to think through the human interactions that will lead you in the right direction, the ways of thinking through design that will help you create something that's actually useful, the way of recognizing that an idea is good or bad, whether it's worth doing or not doing, and, and then just dealing with people. Dina Levinsky is a Russian-born, San Francisco-based writer. She's also the ghostwriter of the recent New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Twin Fidel's Build, an unorthodox guide to making things worth making. And this is a fun episode. We cover Dina's upbringing as she shares some of her parents' backstory from being refuseniks in Soviet Russia, escaping and arriving in the US, how they instilled in her her sense of invincibility and cultivated her curiosity. We discuss her unconventional path to copywriting that eventually led her to work with our previous guest, Matteo Vianello, as part of a creative team that helped Tony Fidel build Nest. Dina not only defined the Nest voice, but she wrote the copy for the website, the packaging, the ads, the videos, the app, blog posts, and even the instruction manuals. So it's no surprise that Tony called on Dina to help him turn his 115-line spreadsheet of advice, tips, life lessons, stories, and insights into his best-selling book. In the episode, Dina describes how she wrote the proposal, organized the content, figured out the structure, interviewed Tony, argued with Tony, reworked, revised, and wrote and rewrote every word. So if you want to go straight to that section, it starts around 41 minutes in. Tony describes Dina as young, brash, bold and brilliant, but she's also witty, engaging and thoroughly entertaining. Enjoy getting to know Dina Levinsky. Dina, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you on this sunny Monday morning. I find myself in uh, sunny, hot, ridiculously hot Austin, Texas. And you are where? I am in uh, pleasantly warm San Francisco. Ah, lovely. Yeah, I'm one of the few that remain in actual San Francisco. Everyone in the pandemic talked about how New York was going to die and San Francisco turned into a war zone and it's crime on the streets. Yeah, there is. (laughs) They're not not wrong. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, there are certain portions of the city that we do not walk through, not because it's particularly dangerous. It doesn't feel dangerous to us, but it's certainly dangerous to the people who are, you know, like shooting up on the street. Yeah. So that's the, that's the really sad part. In the recent elections, wasn't there someone that was uh, voted out? Was it the district attorney? Chesa Boudin. He was very liberal and uh, didn't tend to prosecute anyone. (laughs) In these trying times, you got to get somebody who's uh, at least going to try to solve the problem. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about you. You, I think the best way to describe yourself is you're, you're a writer. And we'll come and talk about how Tony Fidel described you as a writer and the type of writer you are. But you're, you've got quite an interesting sort of backstory. You sound American, you live in San Francisco, but parents, when we spoke before, you talked about how their story was quite interesting. So perhaps we make maybe just start with their influence on you and the journey that you've taken in life. Sure. So I say that I'm 90% American, but then there's like 10% of me that wants to commit insurance fraud. (laughs) (laughs) That's my my Russian side. (laughs) And so, so I was born in Russia in the Soviet Union and we came over when I was three and my sister was six. First to Boston, then to the Bay Area, to Fremont. You were born where in Russia? I was born in St. Petersburg. Apparently that's where the intelligentsia are. I've been told. I never had a chance to experience it. Yeah, no, apparently it's like the, it's like the New York of 
It's Russia. It's nice. I've been there once as an adult. Probably not coming back anytime soon. Ooh. I've always wanted to go to the Hermitage um, and yeah. see it. It's supposed to be amazing, but... No, no longer an option. Anyway, so my parents, uh, yeah, they came over in their 30s, I guess, and they had to make a completely new life for themselves. My dad actually spoke English. My mom didn't. Um, but the thing, I mean, she did eventually, but the thing that I think my parents did, uh, which is this incredible magic trick that I, I'm trying to replicate with my children, I don't think I can, is they had this incredible and completely unfounded sense of elitism where our family like our little four-person family unit the best family in the world superior to all of their families we were the smartest kids they were the best parents and like and just we were special this was must have been great storytelling going on around the dinner table Uh, oh yeah well you know you it's nothing better than looking down on us. <laughs> so we had, we were just our special family and, you know, their Americans were too American and the Russians were too Russian, but we managed to find this perfect, perfect point where everything just made sense and, and we were doing it right. And I think what that gave me was twofold. One is this solid steel core of self-confidence that could withstand anything and continues to be the slings and arrows of high school meant nothing to me. I was fine. I knew I was special. I knew our family was special. And and that really saw me through and has continued to see me through my entire life. And the other thing that it that it did for us is that it created these this very high expectation environment. So because they knew we were special and we knew we were special and they knew we were smart and we knew we were smart, we just had complete freedom to do whatever we wanted. There really weren't any rules. But the expectation was that we wouldn't do anything stupid. And the idea of disappointing our parents and proving them wrong was so, was so horrifying that we, in fact, never did anything stupid. We didn't party too hard. We didn't stay out too late. We didn't get knocked up or do drugs. We just we just were good kids. And I think that is my parents' greatest influence on me. You say that you're applying, trying to apply this this is almost like a superpower to your children. Yeah. How how are you doing it? I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to, I don't know. Because they weren't involved in our lives. Like they weren't like involved in school. They like weren't on the PTA. They like did the bare minimum, but the expectations were so high and the, the horror of, of disappointing them was so high that we, we just did well. Um, and I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to not be involved. I don't know how to like pressure without pressuring. I don't know. How to be an elitist without making them monsters. <laughs> it's like this incredible magic trick and we talk about it all the time and we don't know how they did it. It is interesting that you're a creative writer and your parents were both scientists. Mm-hmm. And my sister is a, a PhD as well in neurobiology. So you, you really broke the mold. Oh, yeah. No, they had absolutely no idea what to do with me. At one point, my mom, my mom actually, when I told her I was going to be an English major, she told me to move to New York and find a rich husband because she could not conceive of any way that I would be able to like actually make money as an English major. It was just beyond the pale. So understandable, though. Move to the Upper East Side and yeah, yeah. live a happy life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I did not follow that advice. But Russians really appreciate the arts, but everyone's an engineer. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't really compute when somebody wants to do that as their profession. In a sense, so you've been the the rebel um, with clarity in terms of the direction you wanted to go. Your 
parents, when we first spoke, you mentioned also the interesting fact that they were refuseniks in Russia. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe just uh, give a little bit of background on that and, and how that might have conditioned the way that they thought about the world? Well, my parents' story is far more interesting than my story. You should really be just like, talking to my dad. So what happened is we're, we're Jewish and the Soviet Union was sort of fundamentally anti-Semitic. The first time we were called Russians was actually when we came to America, because in, in Russia, you were not called a Russian, you were a Jew. That's what was mm-hmm. on your passport. You were not considered a member of society fully. So like in the 70s, 80s. Well, I didn't and, realize that they actually had we put Jewish in your passport. Yeah, yeah. Literally the first time that my father was called a Russian was when he arrived to America. So from birth, more or less, my my parents knew that they were leaving because your opportunities were just always limited. Your children's opportunities were always limited. And so they got married. He must have had a good education because, I mean, they both ended up being well-educated scientists. Yeah, my mom was actually an agronomist, which is kind of a, a aberration for a Jewish person. But yeah, my dad was a chemist, continues to be a chemist, I guess. And he, yeah, you could still get a good education, but your options were always, there was always a, it wasn't mm. even a glass ceiling. There was always... <laughs> A very clear ceiling to cert- certain paths, certain jobs. I mean, there there were exceptions, but the rule was pretty much if you were Jewish, you could never really get all the way to the top of anything. Uh, anyway, so they got married. They applied to leave. There had been a window where Russia was actually like releasing all of its Jews. It was just saying, go, go, go. We don't want you. <laughs> then they realized how many of them were actually extremely educated. <laughs> and, and so they, they the curtain fell once more. Uh, my parents managed to miss that window. And the window didn't open again for nine years. Um, oh. Most people did not spend nine years as, as refuseniks, uh, refused to leave the country. But uh, my, my parents really managed <laughs> to hit that the, the worst, the worst possible period. And what happened in that period of time when you applied to leave, but you couldn't leave is that you would just get fired and your parents would get fired and your grandparents would get fired. The whole family would sort of, the government would just kind of shut you down. You are, if you don't want to live here, Go, we can't go. Well, you can't work here, certainly. And so, incredible. Uh, my, my dad, yeah, it's nuts. So my, my dad got whatever jobs he could. He was like, he like loaded groceries onto trucks. He was a cab driver, which essentially just meant he would drive around trying to pick people up in his regular car. But he, he really landed his, his long-term job with the mafia diluting wine. So his job was in this little bar underneath, a, there's a bar and there's a little room, a hidden room underneath this bar. And he had a bunch of bottles of good wine that were empty and a bunch of bottles of terrible wine and water. And so he would fill the the good bottles of wine with half terrible wine, half water, seal it up and send it upstairs. And there were three lights on the on the wall. And one of the lights meant just be quiet, don't make no noise. One of the lights meant just clean up all the merchandise, try to get everything hidden as quickly as you can. And the last light was if drink a bottle as fast as you can, fall asleep on the couch. Just pretend you're, you're passed out drunk. <laughs> Actually, please, if, if possible, be passed out so that no one can ask you any questions. Apparently, he only had to do that one once. Because just, of authorities was, coming in to check that no one was actually mm-hmm, dying. Yeah, there was, there was a new inspector who had not yet been bribed and they weren't sure if he was bribable. Of course he was, because in that period of time, everyone was bribed. Wouldn't the yeah. customers come in and be like, what the hell is going on with this wine? Or was uh, it just the, the, the nature of Russia at the time? So the alcoholism is, is 
is prevalent in a degree that is kind of hard to even comprehend. But what people would do, it, a bar is really calling, it, it's like a little bit too much for, for what this establishment was. It was like a window in a wall where, <laughs> where people were distributing shots. So you would drink your uh. shot or your glass of wine, move on. The next person in line would come drink it, move on. And that was, I think, probably just how people spent their day. <laughs> wow. It's funny that it was wine and not vodka. You would think it'd be vodka. I don't know. I think it was probably too expensive. Interesting so the use of his chemist uh, skills. But yeah. Well, he said it was six years of this, right? So every day for several hours a day, he would do it. So he got really good at it and he could do it with two hands, like blindfolded. <laughs> and he said it was actually like very meditative. Like he could think about whatever he wanted. And actually it paid way better than his previous job. So just a matter of interest, why the US and not Israel when they did manage to leave the country? Uh, I, th- I think Israel was strongly considered. And I think that's actually where we stated we were going to go. But my mom had a grandmother that was already living in America. And we had a, a lot of family friends that had moved to Boston. And mm-hmm. so there was already a lot of people had managed to get out before we did. And so there was already a community of people that we could go to. Mm-hmm. When you um, sort of look back on that time, um, is there anything other than the memories of the impact of your parents um, and the community you were in that had a pivotal uh, impact on the direction you've taken in life? Any defining memories or experiences? Yeah, so I think that the self-confidence was helpful and the high expectations were helpful. But I think there was one other moment that kind of defined my personality. And it's a it's a very silly story. So my family were big science fiction nuts. <laughs> um, and so we were really into Star Trek. We would watch Star Trek together every week. That was one of our family activities. We would watch Star Trek. We loved Star Trek. And there was going to be like a sh- really exciting show one day. And I was so excited about it. And I was driving everyone crazy. I was running around the house. I was I was yelling about it. I was just like making everyone nuts. And my dad did something which he did very rarely. But I think I just had driven him to distraction. And he spanked me. And I was like way too old for spanking. <laughs> I was like nine or ten. We were like way beyond spanking age. And I was so horrified <laughs> and so upset by this that I went upstairs and I locked, I locked the door and I said, I'm not coming out until someone apologizes to me. And no one came. <laughs> and I missed the episode. And I remember thinking so clearly, like, I'm going to go downstairs and they're going to feel so bad. And they're going to, like, try to make it up to me because they know how excited I was. And they, they caused this problem. And I came, went downstairs and everyone was just doing their thing. They didn't care. Ignored. <laughs> she cared. Completely. Yeah, they were just, you know, whatever. She was upstairs. Clearly, she didn't want to watch this. And I just remember this realization where I was like, oh, the only one that was punished by me feeling bad was me. Nobody else cares. Like, the only one that suffered was me. Like, if I make myself miserable, I make myself miserable. And nobody else is at fault. And nobody else is going to be there to fix it. And so I, I think from that moment on, I just resigned not to make myself miserable. Interesting emotional intelligence at that young age. To recognize yeah, Star that. Trek. Star not, Trek really did it. <laughs> yeah, not to be the victim. And well, I was. I mean, I you, was, and then I realized yeah. it sucked. It yeah, sucks. <laughs> Feeling bad is a terrible. Like, why? Why would you make yourself feel bad? I was the only one that caused my own problem, so mm-hmm. I uh, try to avoid that from that from that moment on. 
Also, it, it, interesting that your father and mother didn't even acknowledge. It, I know. Just let let it go completely. They have no memory of this. I've never. I've actually. I asked my. Of course, my dad has no memory of it, and so I can't ask what what, what they were thinking. But they were probably just you know busy. It's funny how these little things become almost like magnets in the mind. Mm-hmm. These little moments. It was funny. Matteo also talked about the moment as his father was standing in front of a. They were at a gallery in in Venice, and he talked about thinking the the art was just lines. He said, "No, this is fine art," and that. And that Mateo's, was defining... Mateo's version is so much more beautiful, <laughs> elegant, <laughs> and artistic than mine. Or I couldn't watch Star Trek and it, and it bummed me out. <laughs> yeah, but it, as you say, if it it, it was a pivotal re- awakening, a realization of not to embrace victimhood and to not blame others for how you feel and take control of your feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a significant moment and realization in your life to then start to live that way and the impact it has on others around you so it's it's fascinating it's one of my it's definitely one of my superpowers now i would be i would be unhappy at work and i would be frustrated frustrated at some point i'd realize like why am i ugh, no more of this <laughs> just decide to feel differently what was the environment like in terms of how they, as you know, scientists, and I, of course, whether you're a chemist or a mathematician, you've got to be creative and you've got to be curious if you're in your field of discipline. But how did they cultivate your, say, your curiosity and creativity? Yeah, so I think there were, there were a couple of things. One was my, my dad is a voracious reader. It's like clinical. <laughs> it's like a disease. He reads literally all the time, literally like all the time. Like he will read. He, I saw him yesterday at dinner. He was reading all the way through dinner. If he's having a conversation with you and he finds his boring, he'll just take out his book. And so his office, his study was lined with books, floor to ceiling, several thick all the time and like constantly changing. He would always be buying new ones. Fiction and nonfiction. Science fiction and fantasy. Strictly science fiction and fantasy. There are probably some other ones in there somewhere, but mostly science fiction. And so my sister and I also became voracious readers, as you do when you have a parent like that. And my mom. My mom did too. And so what we would do is just walk downstairs and pick a book at random and read it. And then if we liked that book, we'd go back to that like geographical area on the wall and just pick more books around it. And I think that that kind of approach to reading and learning, I think, has always been very helpful. So you, you presumably worked your way through a whole stack of Asimovs and Arthur C. Clarks. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a big fan, fan of Heinlein, who upon later reading, I realized was a complete degenerate. But otherwise, mm-hmm. yeah, no, it was great. And then my my mom was a microbiologist in America, but she was always this incredibly artistic uh, person. And she just loved weird shit. She just... She would see a weird twisty branch and then that weird twisty branch would turn into furniture in our house she would find like a bolt of fabric and that was, that became, you know, so it was just anything strange and unusual and like oddly designed ended up in our house somehow. And, and I think I, I just, I realized that you could be creative in this huge spectrum of ways just by watching how my family absorbs information and then what my mom does with like whatever weird little trinket she finds like in the road somewhere. So how did this translate, this uh, attitude of in, sort of invincibility and, and sense of self-confidence impact you at school? Oh, uh, wasn't that helpful at school? 
<laughs> I wasn't that great at school. I was okay at school. I, I did, I did fine. I was good at what I was good at and I didn't work very hard at what I wasn't mm-hmm. good at. Even with the high expectations. You know, that's like, it's like the thing where you're not supposed to tell your kids they're smart because they then don't work hard because they don't uh-huh. want to, if you work hard and then you still fail, then you're not, maybe you're not that smart after all. So I didn't work hard on anything in the, in like math or I could do science up to biology, but like chemistry, physics, mm. that always got me. And I was at a, a very like pres- prestigious, very like academically advanced high school. And I you felt like I had to do all the APs. And really, Your father must have really been screwed just, me. He must be just looking and going, where did it go wrong? I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You should have seen him trying to help me with my chemistry homework. Oh, it's horrific. Horrific. He was so mad. He's also terrible at helping with homework. My, my sister swore off it years, 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 years before she even got to high school. So they gave up on trying to... I just, think uh, they probably still thought I'd be like a, like a biologist. Nobody wanted me to be a psychologist. That one seemed a little bit problematic, like maybe biologist. And then when I, when I told them about the English major, that's when, <laughs> that's when everyone was just aghast and horror. What was it that ignited that interest in English and, and writing? Other than, I mean, obviously your father, you were, you're a voracious reader, but it was a case of just going, well, that's it. This is the obvious path for me. Was there any ambition at that stage as to where, I mean, apart from obviously going to marry a rich, rich guy in New York and, <laughs> and settle down on the Upper East Side, but did, was there anything in terms of goal setting that you had in mind? No, I always thought I would write a book, which I kind of have now. I wrote a book. It's not my book, but it's still my book. I was just good at it. I was always good at it. And I think I had various adults in my life telling me I was good at it that weren't even like beyond my parents or the teachers. I remember there was like a various moms that would help out in the class. Not that my mom, my mom never helped out in the class, but there was other moms that helped out. And I just remember one of them just saying like, you're going to be a writer. I was like, oh, that's an option. (laughs) You mean I can just read and write for a living? tell me more. And that's, yeah, I, I did I did very well in college. I graduated in three years. I had a high GPA. I was honors, whatever. Because literally all I did was read and write. And reading and writing is such a joy. It's so fun and easy. So I, yeah, I just did what I liked. So from that sort of frictionless path through higher education, was there any, <laughs> I mean, you could have, with a degree like that and with obviously high achievement and, and high scores and high GPA, as you say, and honours, you could have gone in many directions with that sort of qualification. You could have become a sort of a you know, journalist, the New York Times, mm. the Washington Post. I thought about I thought about journalism. It did seem to be the obvious way. Yeah, or, but you ended yeah. up in advertising and marketing. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> was there anything serendipitous that had an impact on the journey that you've taken or the direction you've gone in? Post, uh, or? After college, I, I went and interned at an English newspaper in Spain. And it was like, so, and so fun and so, mm-hmm. so great. And, you know, in Spain and I made all these friends and I did all this fun stuff. And then I came back to America and I looked at like, where can I work at a newspaper in America? And it turns out you have to like go to Kansas or something. You <laughs> go to somewhere, somewhere kind of like some tiny, tiny city in some, somewhere in the middle of nowhere and work your way up to the top of that and then work your way up to the, and this like, it's, uh, it's a very long process. And I am. I'm a profoundly lazy person, actually. So Boise, Idaho wasn't on the, wasn't on the list. Yeah, and I didn't want to do that. And so I, I was like, what else do you do if you're a writer? And so I, I came back home and I got an internship at a publishing company. 
that it was a hippie publishing company. For example, the first question they asked me when I came on my first day, literally the very first question they asked me, hello, Dina, what, what time were you born? What time exactly were you born? Because we need to do your horoscope so that we can figure out how to work together. And I didn't know. So they made me call my mother, who also didn't know. So then they had to approximate. And, you know, from there, it was just a, <laughs> it just went south. Um, and and I, I worked there for a little while. And then I just realized that these are not my people. This was not my job. And, and I needed to make actual money. <laughs> I needed to find a profession where, this was in San Francisco. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I suppose you're right. So if a hippie publishing company, where else would you find one? Yeah. Hippie publishing yeah. company. Yeah. The cut the the book I worked on was called like Chakra Tonics, I think. It's like smoothies for your soul. <sighs> that was a weird six months. Anyway, so then I, I, I decided I needed to get a real job at a with, with you know, regular humans. And I was in San Francisco. So what do you do? You get a job in technology. And I got a job in technology through some circuitous route that was, I was like, okay, well, writing clearly is out the window. I'm not going to be a writer. I'm not going to work in publishing. I'm not going to be a journalist. So I'm just going to get a job in technology and I'm going to figure out how to do that. I'm going to get a job at a startup. So I got a job at a Latvian startup, which is very good for my Russian. Actually, pretty bad for everything else, but pretty good for my Russian. And I was essentially a product manager there um, and pretty decent product manager for that setting. And so then I was like, okay, great. I'm a product manager. And so then I went to another startup and tried to be a product manager at a, a company that wasn't run like as a Latvian scam. <laughs> and they, they had a, a real, it was a real job. And all of a sudden I realized I was, I was pretty, pretty good at the product part, but pretty terrible at the management. <laughs> and then <laughs> convincing engineers to do what I wanted was, was not my forte. And so what I started doing there is what I ended up doing at every job after that, which was I just started writing stuff. I started writing the website. I started writing the marketing. I started writing <laughs> the emails. I started writing the, the everything. Um, because there was nobody else to do it at these little startups. They didn't have anyone. And the writing was all terrible. And so I would just start fixing fixing it. And so I had a bunch of jobs where I was official, officially doing something else. And then it turned out that I was like, I was a marketing person, but I was also a writer. I was a, I was a project manager, but I was also the writer. And, and eventually the writer part just started becoming bigger, bigger. And, and I became an actual writer. Because you've worked with um, some... I mean, looking at your LinkedIn profile, the companies you've worked for have been a really interesting sort of array of, of technology and, and highly technology-driven, but also highly creatively-driven companies. You know, you, you list from Sony, Google, well, Next, uh, Nest, sorry, and Thumbtack. When you're taking on a role like that, having achieved the sort of the standard you've achieved in, in English, how do you go about because this, I wouldn't have thought this is something they teach you at university. How do you write for different, to different audiences, uh, for different products and um, in different sectors and categories? How do you develop that, that skill, without guidance? Because so, and the reason I ask it is, yeah. so many people that work in that, in in advertising and marketing, they'll have gone through the traditional sort of ad school type of uh, education. So you're given creative briefs, you're given insights into audiences, you've given strategies. You've sort of almost fixed this yourself. It's almost like a. Um, I'm intrigued as to how you've you managed to embrace the ability to speak with a different voice and engage with different audiences and where that came from. Yeah. So I mean, I think part of it, and maybe being a product manager, even a shitty one, <laughs> <laughs> maybe helped with that. Whereas 
so much of the job is to understand the customer and what the customer is looking for and what the customer needs and what the customer expects. And so that's always been, you know, you can't write anything. You can't do anything in any space as far as I can, I can tell without knowing who you're doing it for. And so you get a certain understanding of what people's expectations are and what they're looking for. But if I'm completely honest, I don't think the, the voice that I write in changes all that much depending mm-hmm. on the different companies because what people respond to sort of universally is a language that sounds kind of like us talking right now mm-hmm. sort of human colloquial and i think the place that almost everyone goes wrong when they're when they're trying to write and they don't they don't feel very confident about it is they try to start sound smart and when you try to sound smart you get formal mm-hmm. so you'll you'll read something like you know like instructions might be like utilize the screwdriver with the phillips head and you see that and you're like okay so what you would say as a normal human being would be use the phillips screwdriver or if you were trying to be you know that's like some very basic basic human communication but if you were writing for somewhere that wanted to have like a little bit more of a like relaxed fun voice you'd say grab the phillips screwdriver (laughs) it's not that different you can be serious without being formal mm-hmm. and you can have um, sort of a smile that comes out through the, the writing without trying to be funny. And I, I think if you understand who you're writing for and you understand what you as a, as a regular human being like to see, then you can kind of combine those two things into to a voice that makes sense. I'm just when you're talking about writing with, um, with, uh, writing with a smile, it just makes me think of financial services <laughs> or pharma <laughs> advertising. No, no, no. You can, you can tell that those people are writing with like a gun yeah. to their head. That's a very different kind of writing. You can tell when somebody creates something and they they enjoy what they're doing. And you can tell when someone hates their life <laughs> and is writing because they have to get through it. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I can always tell. Um, and I think that I have a, I have a really good like bullshit detector. <laughs> And and I use that for my own writing and for everybody else's. Where George Saunders, actually one of my one of my favorite authors, just says that we have like a little a little line in our in our head, and as you read a sentence, it either tilts to yes or tilts to no, and and very quickly, I'm very attuned to when it hits no. And I think most people are; they're just not necessarily aware of it. Did you ever encounter much pushback in the work that you and what you've written in some of the companies from people just saying no, this isn't the right the right voice, this and the right tone. Uh, yeah, it ha- it happens occasionally when when people think that in order to be taken seriously, you have to be s- extremely formal. Mm-hmm. That that's what people expect, and that's what they want to read. But often, I mean, the solution to that is just to show show them the side by side of the old version and the new <laughs> version, and say which which would you prefer to read? Okay, this this. This sounds like it's complicated and this one sounds like it's easy. Mm. This one sounds like it's going to be harder to do. And this one sounds like I'll get through it in five minutes. And I think there's a, there's a psychology where people are just scared to sound like people because they're worried that that's not what a company should be. But ultimately, we're all just people. We all just want to read something and see something that connects with us. So I read um, in uh, someone describe you as world's fastest writer of copy. I mean, that's quite a skill for someone to say that. How do you, how do you develop that ability? 
a combination of procrastination and <laughs> being completely like losing track of my work and not knowing what things are due. <laughs> Explain what do you? How does procrastination? I'm that's fascinating. Why is that? Oh, uh, uh, is it so? So I I'm very disorganized. I have I'll tell you I'll tell you how many unread emails I have in my inbox right now. I have six thousand four hundred fifty unread emails, and I do the same thing at work. I just kind of just let it go. When things get to a certain point, I'm just like, yes, it's not, it's not going to get any better from here. I'm not going to go back and read all these emails. So I'm I'm very disorganized. And then I, I also tend to procrastinate. And so what happens when you are a disorganized person who tends to procrastinate is that eventually you get a message that says, oh, hey, Dina, mm. where is that bit of copy that you promised me two days ago? And I say, oh, my friend, no problem. Give me five minutes. <laughs> and I write them that piece of copy. And I, I will tell you, that is the world's best training for writing quickly. <laughs> and the, the really nice thing about that is if you do it in front of them, if you show somebody that you are doing it and you give them a version, then you give them another version, you mm -hmm. give them another version in the span of like the three minutes that they're, they're looking at you writing, they think you're incredible <laughs> and they forget the previous two days where they were sitting around waiting for you to actually get around to it. They think, oh my God, this is the world's fastest writer of copy. Thank you so much. And they leave thrilled with the experience. <laughs> <laughs> Early on in the podcast, I interviewed Andrew Santella, who wrote the book. Uh, he's a self-confessed procrastinator. I wrote the book soon, an overdue history of procrastination uh, from Leonardo to Darwin to you and me. And it's really it's a it's a, it's a very well researched um, and, and witty exploration of the subject of procrastination. Um, and it's, it's the origins. It's not a self-help book of ways to cure it, but really he explores everything around the sort of the definitions and, and, and the practices of procrastination and, and the habits and the outcomes of famous historic procrastinator, procrastinators such as Da Vinci, Benjamin Franklin and Darwin. And me. <laughs> and you. <laughs> I, I mean, I fit perfectly into that list, so it makes sense. <laughs> Um, he says it's a must read for any self-confessed procrastinator. So there you go. Uh, maybe get yourself a copy. Interesting when he went into it is to how the way you described it is, is just there's a pressure and a suddenly a moment where you get that it has to be done. But mm -hmm. when you actually sort of really pull it apart and deconstruct it, it couldn't have been done beforehand because often there's something. It wasn't the right time because some, there was a, maybe a missing element or there was something that from a an experience, an attitude, uh, some knowledge that just, it was, it's, it's as if procrastination, and this is something I've come to talk to other people about, procrastination isn't a weakness, it's a strength, because what it's doing is it's putting you in a sort of a mind state to be able to deliver what you need to deliver to the best of your ability. And we call mm. procrastination, yeah, that's a very and we make it, <laughs> we make it guilt-ridden rather than something that you should feel that you should uh, acknowledge. That's a very generous interpretation of me being lazy and looking at Reddit. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> I'll take it. I had to. I had to procrastinate. It was the only way. When you have that, um, of that that call saying, "Hey, Dina, where's that coffee?" and you've got that empty page and screen in front of you, and you need that inspiration, what do you turn to? Because it is because a lot of writers talk about that that anxiety of having that empty page or that empty screen. Yeah, I, I've never, I've never had that, and I don't know why exactly. Um, I don't know why it's so, it's so not scary for me. Actually, one of my favorite things in the world is, is deleting everything I've done and starting from scratch. 
It was, wow. it's my favorite thing to do. I hate because I so wound up in what they're making and they have like the perfect first half of a sentence and then the second half of the sentence isn't working. And so they spin endlessly trying to fix it and then it never quite comes together. And then they, you know, they keep trying to tweak and tweak and tweak and, uh, and I just delete, <laughs> just delete. And I start over from a clean page. And I find that's often the best way to solve any problem is just to tackle it from a different, just a different angle. Um, I'm never too precious about it. So, you know, whatever I put down, whenever I start writing, I don't feel like it's, you know, some kind of gold that I have to mine. It's just if I'm trying it in this direction and I'm going to delete it and try it in a different direction. And whichever way my bullshit detector <laughs> uh, moves is the way that I'm going to go. Uh, I don't plan. I don't outline. I hate outlines. I hate <laughs> outlines. Whenever anyone makes me do an outline, I get so, I, oh, it just drives me crazy. Ever since I was little, I just does, you know, how you're supposed to do like the introductory uh, paragraphs, three, three middle paragraphs and conclusion. I was like, oh, ruining it. You're just ruining it for me. Um, yeah, just sort of, I see where it goes. And then I usually find myself somewhere that I like. You know, and then if I look at it three minutes later and I don't like it, I just start over. It's going to be very interesting because it sounds quite anarchic. I'm a writing anarchist. But it's uh, going to be fascinating to see how your children start to um, emerge and what sort of <laughs> mindsets they have. And there could be a little bit of some feisty uh, conversations going on. Yeah, well, my husband is the exact opposite. He is the planner. He is the outliner. He is the deep thinker. <laughs> he is the exact opposite of me in many ways, but uh, specifically in this one. So we'll see which ones they, wow. they catch on to. Okay. So you're... You know, you know what? I, actually, now that I think about it, I think probably some of that steel core of self-confidence is, mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is helpful. Because if you trust yourself to, uh, to go wherever you go oh. and find yourself wherever you find yourself, then it's not as scary to get started. What about um, inspirations? Do you have any uh, favorite, I mean, from an ad marketing standpoint, things that you you can look to and say, yeah, I love that. That's great. Classic long copy ad. I, you know, I think about my career in advertising, reading things like what Bill Birnbach said and looking at some of the classic ads from DDB days from back in the sort of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. It's amazing because you just don't see ads written that way today. Yeah, I do love I do love the ones that are just like a giant block of text underneath like a tiny little yeah. BW beetle and it's <laughs> just like three pages of copy. I love I love that in principle. Uh I find that um uh I work in advertising and marketing <laughs> the less I like advertising and marketing. Dina, you're not alone. Yeah, so I'm just like I watch commercials and I just find them so mm -hmm. desperately. But, but they are now. Most of the they time. are now. They it, it yeah. has it's, it's degraded over time. Yeah, but uh, but even like even the smart ones are dumb. I, I don't know. It's just it's just the naked consumerism starts to grind on me. Uh, so I can't say that there's anything that I'm uh, particularly in love with at the moment. I think the last time I noticed an an ad that I didn't work on myself and enjoyed it was uh when apple did those billboards uh where they were showing off the oh, camera yeah. uh -huh. so they just they just put art up there essentially it was just like beautiful pictures of all kinds of beautiful like landscapes and people and gorgeous photos and i was like great i vastly prefer driving through a museum than i do you know through this maze of b2b marketing yeah they were uh yeah fantastic um at home 
the ones that lost me slightly were the macro views of broccoli stems and things like that and mushrooms. Oh no, 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 I don't like the broccoli. No, no, I like the I like the very first version. Now they're like they're digging deep. They're like they've really run out of ideas. <laughs> but the, yeah, the 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 broccoli was not it. The bread was really weird. It was like a lot of holes. <laughs> um, no, but the the very first version of that I thought was brilliant because it was it, it showed off the camera, but. It also just made the city more beautiful, so I appreciate any any attempt to do that. Yeah, there was some wonderful, great long copy. They're not even ads. I mean, they're more like little booklets from Nike uh, that they produced over the years. I've got some collected. Yeah, Nike has some really beautiful videos where they just like they really pull at the heartstrings. Oh, I also kind of I like the self consciously stupid. I like the ones that know they're stupid mm-hmm. a little bit. Like this, you remember the squatty potty ads? Yes. Whatever happened to the squatty potty? Very, very popular. We have an upstairs. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't works as advertised. Um, yeah, and I think the ones the kind that lead lean into the like this is a ridiculous premise. Like let's just let's just go all the way. I appreciate I appreciate that. I think the longer you spend in the industry, the fact that you do re- re- everyone realizes that we're just trying to sell stuff to people, things they don't need for money mm-hmm. they don't have that end up in some form of scrap heap. Yeah. So we begin to question the sort of the, the purpose and the validity of the industry. But your writing is sort of taking you in a slightly different direction recently, that you worked with the genius, as Tony Fidel. Uh, the people that don't know Tony has got an incredible story having been part of the team that developed the iPod and then the iPhone and Apple, but also went on to launch Nest with uh, Matt Rogers mm-hmm. um, yep. and then subsequently sold to Google. And he recently approached you to help him write his book. And I'm going to quote from the introduction that you probably wrote. I wrote it all. <laughs> where Tony says, and I'll, I'll quote, being an author only happened because the stars aligned when Dina Levinsky, who I work with, sparred with for a decade, was available and ready to call me on my crap. Young, brash, bold, Dina was there from the earliest days of Nest, watched everything happen firsthand and ready to write what I would write if I could write. Armed with only a spreadsheet of random lessons learned, I had no idea how to get the first word on the page. You certainly got that first word on the page and many more in a brilliant sort of combination of engaging, entertaining, humorous stories of what he goes on to describe, or you go on to describe as... We. Uh, we, yeah, uh, yeah. We went, we, on, to went on to describe. Yeah. As a mentor in a box or an advice encyclopedia. That must mm-hmm. have been quite an experience. Can you just describe... Because when people think about writers of books, it's you, know, you write a book, but you've ghostwritten this. But it is the way he describes it of just being... All he had was literally a spreadsheet of insights and memories and ideas and recommendations for people. How was that? What was the challenge like of, of working with someone like Tony, who many have described as, I think it was Matteo described him as very loud, a very loud manager, um, <laughs> as you yeah. sparred with him to get that, to bring this from an idea to bring it to fruition? So I think that... The the reason that um, Tony sought me out for this particular project uh, was because we worked together for know, five or six years at Nest, and really from the very early days of Nest, and we always had a really a really good working relationship. 
where he would throw just random stuff at me and I would package it together into something um, that he liked or, you know, that he didn't like. And then he would cross out a bunch of it and like add a bunch of question marks. That was my, that was, that was probably where I really honed my start from fresh, start fresh technique. Tony would like, he would like mark up a, you know, whatever I wrote and he would just put question marks over it. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to delete those because I'm not going to go back and ask him what he meant by this question mark. It's too much work. Anyway, so we, um, together, we kind of figured out the, the voice of the brand, the voice for him personally, which is essentially the same mm-hmm. thing. Cause I would, I would go straight his blog posts or whatever. And then, um, we also just got to trusting each other. He trusted me to come up with stuff based on whatever he told me. Um, and I figured out how to work with him and poke around and, and figure out what he actually meant by things. And so having that as the foundation was incredibly helpful because I don't actually know how to, I don't know how to ghostwrite a book for anybody else. Cause I can't imagine not having that foundation. That sounds, that sounds terrifying. Um, but from the beginning, we trusted each other. Um, and then, yeah, he just came to me with a spreadsheet. <laughs> and the spreadsheet, I actually have it right here. I can look at it. It had 117, 115 lines. Of, and the, li- the lines are things like um, how to hire when you have a big team. Uh, take risks when you can. Don't rest and get comfortable. <laughs> um, ask forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> Just like that's literally it. That was that was all that was on the spreadsheet. It was like a giant list of things and like that. And then you would sit and talk and to so, him and deconstruct. Mm-hmm, yeah. So then we, I, I was like, okay, what does this mean? Um, give me a summary of what this means, and then give me like what story, like just what stories do you have that would support something like this? And so we added that to the spreadsheet. And then he was like, okay, well now make let's make it into a book. And I was like, how are we gonna? What are we gonna do with this? Like, how are we gonna organize it? So the original plan for the book was to literally have it be an encyclopedia, to have it be an uh, alphabetical. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't know. I don't, let's just make it alphabetical. Screw it. But like go all the way into encyclopedia. We'll make it alphabetical. The first, uh, it was going to be A for assholes. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, you, you want me to write? I'll write you. I'm going to write you a good book. We're going to start with assholes. And then, uh, and then we had just these like, uh, interviews. So he was in Paris. I was in San Francisco during the pandemic. Um, we got a little during the pandemic. Yeah, this was the timing. The timing really couldn't have been worse, especially on my end. We signed the paperwork to um to, to for me to write it. I signed the contract, and like a week later, I had a baby. <laughs> so I, I had my I had my little pandemic baby, and then you know I took a few months off, and then uh. A couple of months after my baby was born, my mom died, not of COVID, of uh, pancreatic mm-hmm. cancer, but uh, that happened. And then it was like time. And then we were all locked down, trapped inside. I was like, I guess this is the time we write a book. Um, so we got a little bit of a slow start, especially because uh, I was so excited by the idea of having the first chapter be assholes that I, I was like, okay, let's have that. Let's r- write that one first. Let's start with A. And let me tell you, when you are kicking off a book project, the way you should not start that book project is, so a lot of people say you're an asshole. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's dig in. <laughs> why is that, do you think? And why do so many people think they need to be assholes to get anything done? Tony? Yeah. Turns out that was an a awful way to start. And then he was like, what? Wait, what? 
well, 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 well. And then I'm like, okay, okay, let's not do that. Just tell me about other assholes that you worked with. And then he would just get really worked up <laughs> talking about people he disliked. And he's like, and it was just miserable. It was a miserable start. And so after that, we, we scratched A. <laughs> we said, we'll go back to it. And we started it, trying for a different structure. And that's uh, as we, and we slowly, slowly worked out the structure that would somewhat follow his chronological mm-hmm. uh, career. And because yeah, I realized there were times, you know, there were, there were moments early in his career where he learned specific lessons as, you know, you do when you're 20 and you're, you're starting your life. And then, you know, you learn, you learn other lessons as you progress through your career. And so we, we figured out the structure together. Um, and then after that, it was kind of a battle of how much story versus how much advice, mm-hmm. uh, where we would constantly go back and forth where I was pushing for more story and he was pushing for more advice. But he didn't. He didn't want it to be an autobiography. He wanted it to be this. He had this very specific vision in his head of I'm gonna like use this advice that I have. I, I give out all the time, and I'm gonna put it all in here. And I don't want it to be. I don't want people to be distracted. I don't want people to think I'm like I'm just like telling you know stories about Steve Jobs all the time. Like this is this is important stuff, and it, it needs to be pure. And I was like, no, the only way people are gonna read it is if you talk about Steve Jobs a little. And he did. <laughs> They're curious. Everyone's curious. Yeah, well, of course, because he, he loved him and he was a, a Steve Jobs' mentor. And you can't tell the story about Steve Jobs, but it was a lot of back and forth, uh, especially with so that. So do you think in this instance where you said you hate outlines and you hate that type of sort of direction, you didn't really have that with this other than that a spreadsheet couldn't really be described as an outline? No, I made a, I made a list of chapters mm-hmm. from the spreadsheet and then and then I just kind of went from there. But yeah, there was never there was never anything more than that. But like, we had to do a list of chapters for the um, proposal; mm-hmm. otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten a publisher. So I did a list of yeah. That's going to be one of my questions. Did he have a publishing <laughs> deal before, or did you wait until you'd actually got uh, like a prototype version of the book? Mm-mm. No, we um, we did a proposal, which had sort of a summary of what we were planning, and then I wrote like. A for A, B, and C. It was like assholes, breakpoints, mm-hmm. some other thing. And I, I wrote up like a paragraph of what we were writing about. And I wrote in the voice that is in the mm-hmm. book. So I wrote it like I write it. And people like that <laughs> to go back to writing like a human being. It's a wonderful book that anyone really should read. I've told quite a few friends and ex-colleagues that it's a, a book very much well worth reading because it isn't just a novel and it isn't just autobiographical um, of Tony that it is this as you described in the book it's um, a mentor in a box and advice encyclopedia where you can drop in at any point in time there was also something that was said it's for anyone chasing excellence excellence it's advice for anyone who wants to build something that does not want to waste their time on this planet can you just describe why it's, it's a book that isn't just about about building a product it could be used as as guidance and advice for anyone whether it's a service or wanting to create something with with purpose underneath it how people can use this as a as a guide and as a like a mentor in a box sure so i think a, a lot of it ends up coming down to understanding human nature and understanding who you're building for that's what really a lot of the guidance of the book ends up being about you can't create anything without knowing a story, without knowing who you're telling the story to, without knowing why you're making it, or uh, really thinking through every part of what you're making. And I think that really does apply to to everything. It's hmm. right now. It's like 
very heavy in the technology cir- circles, but it wasn't intended to only be for, for tech geeks. It's really intended for, for anyone doing anything. You don't have to actually be a CEO or a founder. Everyone creates something. Everyone cares about somebody else that they're making something for. And this is just a guide for how to think through the human interactions that will lead you in the right direction, the ways of thinking through design that will help you create something that's actually useful, the way of recognizing that an idea is good or bad, whether it's worth doing or not doing, and and then just dealing with people. Because that's, that's all that work comes down to. It's making something and making it with others. And so that was really the, the goal of the book was to bring it out, bring th- that knowledge that is sort of contained and exalted in technology, but really make it available to everyone. Obviously, the, the book does follow the arc of Tony's narrative, his, sto- his, his, his life and how technology has evolved. We're at an interesting point at the moment in the world where like with everything in in science and science fiction, there's a dystopian and a utopian vision. And sometimes we end up somewhere probably in between. The future that we're talking about now is very much caught up with the impact and the question over how AI and machine learning is going to affect uh, particularly creative industries. How do you feel about the threat that something like AI has on writers and potentially making them redundant? I mean, obviously the Things like GPT-3 and GPT-4, there's an open AI project that, um, that where people are talking about the impact it can have. And there's plenty of books out there people can read about it. Before you answer it, also, when I was writing that question, I was thinking, could Tony have gone to an AI with a spreadsheet, put it in there and had it generate that story? Uh, no. <laughs> no. No, the... So it's interesting. I I was listening to a podcast about this where a woman had a really hard time writing a story about her sister who died. And so she used the AI to like help her make her way through it. And even though the AI was completely wrong (laughs) and didn't know anything and didn't know her sister, like just through sort of the the fixing and the repetition and the the process, she kind of made it through. Mm -hmm. There's also a a company called Jasper that writes like, like, content marketing stuff mostly and the thing is there's a lot of writing that's awful and useless and stupid (laughs) (laughs) and my first reaction when i hear about these things is oh no they're coming for us (laughs) we'll be we'll be eliminated just like the you know the workers on the factory floor but but then again i'm like i hate that writing i hate that like content marketing like Oh, you know, like the 25 most fun activities in Soho, like, you know, like that garbage that's Mm -hmm. people just are now filling their websites with because that's what they need to do for SEO. Clickbait. Yeah. Yeah. Just click, just dreck. And I'm like, you know what? If somebody comes up with a good way for human beings to not write that, I'm kind of okay with, I'm all right with it. Like, and then if the people who are only capable of writing that have to come up with something else to do. That's probably for the best. <laughs> mm-hmm. if, they're bad, if they're bad writers and they can only only think of like SEO garbage, then, you know, maybe they just need to find a, a, a job where they're more qualified to write something good or do something good. And then if the factory floor is filled with 
robots, the, you know, the people that are still running the factory still exist. There's still, there's still talented people who are designing the robots, who are thinking through the problems, who are, who are finding solutions. And I just doesn't feel like if you are, are good at finding the kernel of interest and import in something that somebody is saying, that is a, that's such a, a difficult thing to do. And it's such a human thing to do. It just doesn't ever seem like it's going to be completely automated away because people, people so having, just don't know how to express themselves and they go on and on and on and on and on trying to tell you what's important. And, and a, a machine would just be like, all of this seems equally important. But if, if you need to construct something and make something of some either tiny piece of something that somebody has said or a giant novel that they've written for you, that's a, I think that's the job of a person. Hmm. I think it always will be. Okay. So having written this book for Tony, do you have a great American novel in you or <laughs> Russian, maybe the 10%? Definitely not a Russian novel. I don't know. I've, to be honest, I, uh, I've been really scared of writing fiction. Fiction is very, very different and it's a lot harder. And I'm, I always say that my main problem is I have nothing to say. <laughs> like there's nothing that I, I, I must impart to the world, which is funny that I'm doing this interview. But yeah, it just doesn't really feel like I, I have to say anything. But I have been reading this George Saunders book about writing the mm. swim in the pond in the rain, which is where I'm getting my little my bullshit detector analogy. But also okay. he says that most people don't have anything <laughs> that they need to impart into the world and that really good writers are really just following that bullshit detector. Um, you wouldn't I, believe it by the amount of blogs you can, you can see in the growing size of yeah. Substack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, well, that's the thing is so many people feel like they have something to say and that the world must know. And I have never felt that mm. feeling. I'm, I, I'm going to attempt to do some personal essays, mm -hmm. probably about my dad because he's very strange and funny. And so, and as you say, he's, there's a story to be told. Yeah. And he has this, he has this incredible story. Like, I didn't even tell you his, like, oh, there's mm. so much more. <laughs> he's such well, a weirdo. I'll let you know. So, so who are your writing inspiration, R writers inspiration? So I, so there's, so now I've mentioned him twice, George Saunders, who I, I completely mm -hmm, adore. Yeah. He's, he's mostly a short story writer, but no, he's been writing some long form. But to be honest, I still love the short stories the most. I really love Gary Steingart. I've not come across him. How do you pronounce his name? Steingart. Steingart. He okay. is he is like my exact same background. He's a, a, a Russian Jew who immigrated to America as a kid. Mm. And and it really just the kind of stuff he writes just feels like it was written by like a really funny uncle. <laughs> my favorite of his is Super Sad <laughs> True Love Story. I haven't read his new Super, one, but I'm going to. What's it called? Super what? Super Sad True Love Story. <laughs> Uh, and he has a he has a new one called Our Country Friends that's on my list. It's a okay. it's apparently the great pandemic novel. Um okay, I really I'll like Vonnegut because anyone mm -hmm. with a heartbeat should love Vonnegut. I actually I'm going through a phase where I'm not reading very much because um before my kids turn two and a half, it turns out I can't read. <laughs> and then when they turn two and a half, suddenly I have the ability to start reading again. So we're right, we're almost there. And then I'll I'll, I'll let you know. Okay, so there's a stack of books on the bedside table yeah. waiting to be read. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so this early stage, you're, you know, you know, as they go two and a half to five to ten to fifteen, there's, we're, I say we're at a really interesting sort of time in the world, where if you are consumed by or consuming the news 
feeds of any platform or publication, it's all despondency and, and doom. Mm-hmm. You know, war, climate, food insecurity, <laughs> recession. Mm-hmm. What are your hopes for the next 10 years in this this time oh, of All of that magically gets better? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly. Which it, which it like, probably will. Yeah, no, no. No, no, I think mm-hmm. they're all right. I think we're doomed. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to a certain extent. I, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful, but I think we're kind of doomed. Yeah. So I would mm-hmm. love, I would love for there to suddenly be the will to do something about climate change. I would love for inequality as economic inequality to n- not be completely insane. I would love for right wing nationalism to disappear. I would love for Donald Trump to choke on a French fry. I would, I, you know, I would, there's. <laughs> I have a lot of hopes <laughs> or, for the next 10 years. Might need a Big Mac. <laughs> Ugh, yeah, I don't know. The giant, a well-done piece of steak <laughs> with some ketchup on it. Well, it's going to be interesting. If you do have something to say over the next 10 years, there's probably plenty to be written um, <laughs> and commented yeah, we on. Li- and we, live certainly... in, we live in interesting times. Yeah, but if you can say some of this stuff with a smile, as you say, when you're writing for people, then it, it would probably make people feel better and give them hope. Yeah, I, I think there's, so. I think there's often humor to be found in times when everything has gone to shit. Yeah, well, um, I'm sure at some point you're going to wake up one day and think with that open, with that with that open that screen, empty blank screen, words are going to start to flow, and I'm sure it's going to be highly engaging and entertaining and. Hopefully educational, well, um, so. like the the build book. <laughs> um, what do you want your legacy to be as a writer or as a human being? I mean, I I think I I just want to I want to write things that I'm proud of and that are well received. I guess <laughs> it, see, it mm-hmm. seems so it seems so lame, but I've been watching the response to build and and it's mostly very very glowing, almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> weirdly very positive nobody's been mean on twitter it's just bizarre and creating something that inspires those kinds of feelings in others is just really exciting and i would love to do that again and then yeah i would love to not screw up my children that'd be good okay well well let's get to the quick fire questions what principles do you stand by everything will probably be fine stop working so much it's better to laugh about it than cry about it that's good advice remain optimistic you've made hard choices in your life have there been some that have turned out to be the right decision when you look back i think most of the hard choices that i've made they were really really hard it usually meant i shouldn't be doing them because i Mm -hmm. there's something in me that was just vigorously protesting and i didn't want to do it i think the exception exception was probably marrying my husband which took a really long time for us to figure out and we were (laughs) you know on and off forever it was very dramatic and I think that the thing that finally broke me was the, I was actually a very bad communicator. I think one of the side effects of my superpowers of not feeling bad and thinking I, I can, I can pretty much get through anything is that I would, whenever anything bothered me, I would just sort of swallow it up and not talk about it because, you know, in an hour I'll feel fine anyway. Why make a big fuss? And, and eventually my, my now husband was like, what are you doing? Just, <laughs> you have to communicate, you lunatic. And, and, and upon realizing that we could do that, let's get married. <laughs> and that was turned, it turned out to be very easy after like, like five years of, of back and forth. Mm-hmm. Where do you go for inspiration and to discover new ideas? 
Uh, so in a couple of months, when my youngest turns two and a half, I'll go back to books. But right now I spend, I have a Reddit addiction. I kind of just, oh, really? yeah, it's, I think it's not the worst addiction in the what? world. It's like better than online shopping or something, but I spend a lot of time uh-huh. <laughs> just looking at a million different, completely random things. Subreddits. Oh, which wow. subreddits? Wow. Oh God, I can look. Yeah, no, I, I okay. just, I really, I really like it. And then I listen to podcasts and, and I talk to friends. I really like Radiolab. Radiolab's probably mm-hmm. my favorite. You've touched on, uh, when, the, when we talk about the next 10 years, some pretty monumental problems that we face. Um, what's the one problem that's definitely worth solving? Climate change. The world is on yep. fire. Yeah. <laughs> Can we please put it out? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. If there were a dinner party you're hosting in San Francisco and invite four people either from history or who are alive today um, that would help you plan for a better future, who would they be? So I had a I had an answer for this and then I I woke up this morning and I had a different answer. So I'm going to tell you the, the both, I guess. So the, mm-hmm. the I think the problem with solving the world's problems isn't that we don't know how to solve the world's problems, is that we is that we do not have the will to solve the world's problems. That yeah. we cannot agree on what those problems are and we cannot agree on the solutions to those problems. So I think mm-hmm. what, so my original thought was like, just bring a bunch of people who people will listen to. So like mm-hmm. for America, the right worships Reagan. Let's get Reagan. Let's get Gandhi. Yeah. Let's get Steve Jobs to pack it all together. Oh, and let's get the Q guy from QAnon. More not to listen to him, but just to expose him as like whatever depressing fraud he is so that everyone can stop (laughs) listening to him, you know, just be like, oh, this Uh is just like a 36 year old man who lives in his mother's basement propagating (laughs) hatred across the world. Like, let's just not listen to that guy anymore. And then I realized I think a better answer would be like whoever, whoever was the best at propaganda in the Soviet Union, in (laughs) Nazi Germany, it would be a terrible dinner party. Let's be clear. This would be the world's worst dinner party. But like whatever, like the propagandists of like the, like Mao's, you know, Uh (laughs) right hand man, whoever those were, I I failed to look it up, but I'm sure it is easily available. Like I think those dudes probably Mm -hmm. know how to sway people and that's what we need. Wow. What a, what a thought. Goebbels, (laughs) Dr. Goebbels. Yeah. I didn't want to say Goebbels, but yes, Goebbels. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's a, it's it's very, um, the world's worst dinner party. It's a very, yeah, but it's a, a creative way of solving a problem. Who would be good? For, who would be good at this? These monsters. Uh, that's a, that's a great answer because a total left field approach to this this question. So yeah, I like that. <laughs> is there a question that no one asks you that you wish they would? What is the secret to making a really good sandwich? Maybe your kids are going to ask you that, <laughs> mommy. No, they, they, <laughs> they know they they get mama sandwiches on the mama sandwiches are okay. constant menu item. All right. Well, the next person, next podcast that you do, someone needs to ask you that question so you can answer it. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's no. Why I put it Very important. Okay. So, possible question advice to someone that's about to study, it's going to sort of, uh, university, college, but has been told that their dream, their ambition, their goal in life is impossible. What would your advice to them oh, be? Oh, well, everyone's probably right, but, you know, screw it. You only live once. <laughs> I mean, if everyone's telling you your idea is impossible, then the odds are slim and they're against you. Mm. However, what else are you going to do? Go be a lawyer? I mean, you know, <laughs> life is the process of elimination. 
And the the best thing that you can do is if you have a dream is go try it. And if the in the process you realize that dream is not for you, then it'll you'll probably find something else that you want to do along the way. That's nicely put. Life is a process of elimination. Look, people we don't think that way when we think about failure. Uh, it's a good way to contextualize it, actually. Okay, a karaoke night in San Francisco. <laughs> You're out. Uh, kids have got a sitter. What are you? What are you delivering? So the one that I won't, I don't embarrass myself with is "Criminal" by Fiona Apple. But the one I do okay. embarrass myself with, which is way more fun, is "Phantom of the Opera." Oh my goodness! Mm-hmm. Nothing more fun than yeah. belting out "Phantom of the Opera" at the top of your lungs. Okay, recent TV series or a film that you think people should see that they might not have done? Severance. Have you seen oh, it on Apple? Apple mm-hmm. TV. Um, is that the one about the office? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so um, good. About halfway through. So Ugh, isn't it to, incredible? Yeah. Ugh, I love it. It's very, very unusual. I can't quite work out where it's going yet. Yeah. I know. Isn't that? Yeah. That's why okay. I like George Saunders. Is you never quite know where the stories are going okay. either. So no spoiler alerts there. Mm-hmm. Aside from build, what book do you think we should offer a listener who comes up with good comments on Instagram or on the website? So, I, I mean, I've, I've mentioned a couple that I really love. So to be completely honest, I, I feel like the answer should be like Sapiens or something. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I've had that I recommended never, so many times. I have never read it because I only read fiction and Build is the only business book I've ever read. And it's also the only book I've ever written. <laughs> and I just... I just don't, I don't, I just don't read that stuff. So I'm going to go with 10th of December, which is my favorite George Saunders collection of stories. And I think more people should read it because it's very strange and wonderful. Okay, we'll add that. And final question, who should we interview next? Mm, So I thought about this for a while. So the obvious answer is Tony, but Tony is so tired. He's so Mm. tired. (laughs) He's been doing podcasts. And interviews pretty much nonstop for a month. And he, I think he's taking a break. So yeah, quite right. But there was another man at Nest who I knew, Mm -hmm. who I adored, who is actually still working with Tony at Future Shape, their firm, and who is just weird and wonderful and delightful. And his name is David Slew. And he actually worked with Tony at General Magic, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he has a, yeah, he's like a, a UX fairy. (laughs) <laughs> like uh-huh. comes down and sprinkles <laughs> sprinkles some magic on your on your UX and then flutters away to like go live what on a, your what a great somewhere. way to be described weird <laughs> weird wonderful and a UX fairy yeah. and he's really he's a really interesting dude so I think you guys would have a nice chat okay well I'll get this live next week and then you can make the introduction okay okay all right Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dina, for your time. Um, yeah, thank you. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your day uh, to do this on a on a holiday. And yeah, it's just it's been really educational, insightful to hear. I hope so. From someone that uh, you know, because you, you don't really think about when you're. Uh, for me, when I'm listening to books on Audible or you're reading that someone has ghostwritten written something, how they go about it. And particularly with someone as unique as uh, Tony Fidel, to have done what you've done and created such a, a masterful book of insight and wisdom and advice from a spreadsheet is is incredible. And um, I, you know, thoroughly recommend everyone go and go and read it. Oh, thanks. Um, or, I or gift that. it to, oh, to yes. someone. So I think just I th- purchase it however you deem necessary. Yeah. Whatever, 
Whatever, and, whatever way you want to buy it is fine. And really look forward to seeing whatever collection of short stories <laughs> that you produce because I think they're yeah, going to be fairly entertaining and uh, and put a smile on everyone's face. And well, we really all you have to right do, now. all you have to do is just text me in a month and say, "Hey, Dina, remember when you said you were going to write something?" And then I'll write, I'll write it real quick. Yeah, <laughs> in five minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And um, again, good luck in the future. And, and uh, at some point, maybe we'll have to do a follow up and find out how your children are building that same superpower that you're develop- you've developed from your parents. I'm almost certainly letting them down in every way, but we'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay. All right, Dina. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> all right. Have a good day. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.